All right. Good morning. Uh, good to see you guys on this beautiful Sunday morning. It's going to get hot uh, starting today and if through the next couple of days. Uh, the water sprinkler has become our best friend at our house as Cohen runs through. It's been entertaining generations and it still continues to do so besides watering the lawn. Uh, today we're continuing our series on the letter to the Romans, the power of the gospel. That was pretty cool, huh? Matthew was reading from his home, streaming in live here as we're also streaming in live. So welcome on site. Also to you that are joining us online. Uh, our family went to Legoland in San Diego, California a couple of years ago, and it was quite a fun trip. It was a destination we've always wanted to go to, and I can't ex remember ex the exact ride, but it's one of those roller coaster kind of attractions uh, where there's a certain height that you have to be on. And I already knew in the family ahead of us that there was a little boy, and he wasn't going to make that line. Uh, but he was going to try. He was like, Mommy, Daddy, am I going to make it? It's like, well, we'll try, we'll try. He goes up to the line. He's just a little bit short, and the person working there said, I'm sorry, but you're going to have to turn away. He tries to tiptoe uh, his way up uh, to the line. He's like, see, I'm tall enough. I'm tall enough. And the attendant's like, sorry, it's a safety thing. I can't let you on the ride. The kid was in tears. The parents were in tears. No one was happy. It was a terrible day at Legoland. Uh, as I was looking at that, uh, as that image, as you're imagining with me in that image, in that situation, it doesn't matter if you agree with it or not. There's a certain standard. Uh, the red line is the red line. Like, it's a safety thing. You can't uh, go be underneath of that red line. It doesn't matter how hard you try to argue. That is uh, the standard. And there seems to be a standard for us as well in our day and age, a standard all around us uh, that, that we try to tiptoe, if you will, that we try to attain, we try to uh, reach on our own. Don't we uh, try to justify uh, why we do what we do? We all try to justify our purpose. We all try to justify our existence. Uh, after all, what are the reasons that you go to work? Why do you study what you study? About how you parent your kids or how, how you are in your relationships? Uh, what is the reason for your existence? We all try to tiptoe a little bit. We all try to justify ourselves. And this morning, we're continuing our series on the letter to the Romans, uh, the power of the gospel. And we're part of the letter where, again, the last couple of weeks, uh, we're only in chapter three here, where there's been a lot of bad news. But we can't know how good the good news is until we know how bad the bad news is. And Paul's going to give us some more bad news today. It's going to drill into us just a little bit more. The question we're addressing today isn't so much of whether human beings can do good, because human beings can, and there's many of us that do do good. The question we're going to try to answer this morning is whether human beings are good, inherently good, in the core of our being. Because ultimately, as we've been hearing uh, last week, as Howard was preaching, that it, it's not purely about what's happening on the outside. It, it's about the heart. It's about living out our convictions, living out our understanding of who this God is. So the big idea for us this morning is this. Since God is the definition of good and righteousness, no one else is good and righteous. That's a simple big idea this morning. Since God is the definition of good and righteousness, no one else is good and righteous. No one, no one is righteous because God is that standard. It doesn't matter how hard we try to tiptoe. It doesn't matter how hard we try to reach that standard or that line. It is what it is because God is that standard. God is that perfect standard that we're called to. Now, the letter to the Romans was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome. And Paul here is continuing his argument with his readers. In chapter 1, we saw how the power of the gospel uh, changes everything. It's enough to change the other core of your being as you go out and you live this life. 
in chapter two, how we, we saw uh, how it doesn't matter what ethnicity, what nationality, what education, what economic standing, what your sexual orientation is, whatever it is, it, your, your context is in life, we all fall short of the glory of God. We're all in need of grace, no matter where we are and who you are. Therefore, we, we can't judge because only God is the judge because God is that standard. God is perfect. And we read at the end of chapter 2 that God, again, doesn't look at what's outwardly. He looks at the inward. As remind us, as end of chapter 2 says, this, a person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor a circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is the Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirits, not by the written code. So such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. As Paul was speaking here, writing this letter to the church, I'm sure at this moment there were some of his Jewish listeners asking, hey, hey, hey Paul, hold on a second here. What's, so you're telling me the law doesn't do anything. It doesn't actually save me. So what's the point of it at all? Like, why do I need to follow it? Why do I need to listen to it? Like, if it doesn't save us, if it doesn't actually do anything, what's the purpose of any of this? So he tries to, and Paul does answer this question, starting in Romans 3, 1 to 2. What advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. Now, as you think about your own experience, you think about your own life, uh, was there a time when you thought, man, I, I was part of something big? You know, I was part of something really, really special. And I just think about you know, yeah, my family, my certain moments and milestones and own families. Like, but I, I remember in 2010 when the Winter Olympics came, I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. You know, <laughs> the Olympics came, the whole world came, you know, walking down the street. It's like, oh, there's the Korean curling team walking down the street as well. Like, you know, so it's pretty cool that we were part of that as a city. But come on, the Jewish people, they were given the very words of God. They, they saw God at work. They were part of God. They experienced the very presence of God and the miracles of God. As we read in the Old Testament, God gave the Jewish nation the written word, and the Jewish people had this unparalleled access to God. As I think about that, I'm like, well, I guess 2010 was not cool uh, anymore. Actually, as you think about the Old Testament, we often say it's old and it's irrelevant, but it was, it's highly relevant to us and how we understand the New Testament. And we see the law. There were good things that actually did come from it. Paul is saying, what advantage do you have? Much in every single way. And we actually see this in very real ways here in our life. Case in point, uh, the bubonic plague in the 1300s. There was another big pandemic. Uh, there was a 10% mortality rate. If you had treatment, it was 10%. If you didn't have treatment, it was 30 to 90% mortality rate. It killed, it killed 50 million people worldwide. I think right now with the COVID-19, we're at 644,000, something like that. This killed 50 million people worldwide. And the Jewish community was actually persecuted during this time because they were seen as being immune or blamed for the cause of the outbreak because they had, they had less cases in their community. Well, they weren't actually immune. Jewish laws actually promoted cleanliness. That's what it was. Uh, they were washing their hands. They were bathing. They, they, were, they were taking care of themselves. The Jew must wash his or her hands before eating or washing or using the washroom. They had to bathe at least once a week before the Sabbath. In other words, they had better hygiene than anyone else in the 1300s. 
for the law actually had a very practical, practical use there. And what advantage did they have in every way? There was, there, was, there was a goodness to it. The Jewish nation was given advantage in living out the law. So Paul continues in verse 3, what if some were unfaithful, speaking to the Jewish people? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. The argument here that Paul is painting in front of us is this. If, so if God's chosen people, the Jewish nation, if they were unfaithful, does this mean that God is unfaithful? Does this mean that God isn't who he says he is, that God is the liar? And the argument continues with Paul saying, replying, not at all, emphatic, no, not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar. In other words, what we do doesn't nullify who God is. What we do doesn't nullify who God is. Why? Because God is the standard. Since God is the standard, what we do doesn't nullify who God is because man doesn't determine whether God is faithful or not. Because humanity doesn't determine whether God is good or not. We don't set the standard for God. God sets the standard for us. If we could determine whether God is good or not, then God really wouldn't be God at all. You would be God. We would all be gods. But that doesn't work that way because God is the definition of good. God is the definition of perfection. Not you, not me, not man. God is the truthful one. So Paul says, let, every, let, let, let God be true and every human being a liar. Meaning, in other translation, there's God is reliable. That God is reliable and every human being is unreliable. And we've seen that all throughout human history. We're seeing it during our time right here and right now. Did you know that King Henry I of England, uh, something like the 1100s, he decided to standardize the unit of measure, uh, the unit of measure with his foot. Hence, we got the idea of the foot. Uh, that's, that was the standard of measurement. His foot was going to be the foot. Uh, like, like, this is what everything else is going to, going to be measured by. You don't take, and how strange would it be if you're like, well, this is the foot. It's like, no, this is the foot. Like, look at my foot. Like, this is the foot. Like, you don't compare anything else to the foot, the foot you compare it in relation to everything else. Uh, and he was going around uh, saying that. Uh, and I think that's our same kind of understanding that we don't go and define the foot. We don't go and define who God is. God defines it for himself. He has said it as what it is because God is that standard. God is the judge and we can't judge God. And we see in this, in verse four here, King, uh, Paul quotes King David in Psalm 51 verse Four, and this psalm is actually King David's confession of having the adultery with Bathsheba. He recognizes that, God, you are the perfect judge. You are the standard by which the rest of the world is measured by. Not by what I do, not by what I think, not by what I feel. But, God, you are that standard. And he confesses that. And Paul throws it into, into this text here. You see a lot of Old Testament quotes. So, in other words, this means it doesn't really matter if I believe God is true or really not, because I don't set the standard. God is the standard. And truth doesn't depend on whether people believe it or not. You ever thought about that? Truth doesn't depend on whether I think it's true or not. Something is true simply because it is true. Just because humanity says it's true doesn't mean it's true either. Likewise, just because humanity doesn't say it's true doesn't mean it's not true. If you're tracking a bit of a tongue twister. 
that we don't define what is true now. We don't define the standard. And some people, there's significant consequences to that because some people would argue that just because I don't see God, or I don't feel God, I don't experience God means that God isn't real. It means that God isn't active and moving. It's sort of like the question, when the tree falls in the forest and no one is around, what's the end of that sentence? Does it make a sound, right? You ever heard that, that question before? And as you think about that, the answer really is, well, yes. <laughs> yes, the tree does make a sound. Uh, it's whether we, just because we're not around to hear it doesn't mean it doesn't make a sound. Sound is just the movement and the change of vibrations of the air. Uh, that, that's the definition of what sound is. So yes, it does make a sound because sound doesn't depend on us hearing it or not. So it's rather actually a rather arrogant question because it makes humanity the sole judge, doesn't it? That question it makes humanity the sole judge of whether there is sound or not, whether something is true or not, whether something happens or not, where what we think and what we feel, what we experience, that is the standard versus whatever it is that God is saying. I'm not sure you can see that photo there. You can currently see Comet Neowise, a five kilometer wide comet in the sky. I think it's starting to go farther and farther away from us now. So you need binoculars and telescope. I used to be able to see it within the last week with your bare eyes. This photo is actually taken by Samuel Cheng. He goes to our church. Uh, maybe he's listening online right now. I don't know. But I, I asked him if I can post this up. And he had this beautiful picture of the comet uh, in the sky. This comet's made out of ice and dust as old as our solar system. It was the closest to Earth just this last Thursday. It just missed us at 100 million kilometers away. And last time it was around, an inbounding orbit was 4,400 years ago. And you think about that, the pyramids in Egypt were only 100 years old at that time. That's the last time it came around. The next time it comes around, if it makes it back, it's going to be 6,800 years from now. That's the next time it's going to be back around. And yet this comet was only discovered back in March. Does not blow your mind. This comet has existed always, as far as we know, out there, just floating around. This comet always existed, but just because we didn't see it, we didn't think it existed. We didn't think it was out there. We didn't know it was out there. We didn't believe it was out there. But before we even knew that about this comet, it did exist. It was there. And whether something is true or not, whether God is true or not, God is faithful or not, isn't up to us because we don't set that standard. We, 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 our, our vision is limited. Our, our understanding of the universe is, is limited. Humanity is not the standard. We're not the judge. We're not the judge of what is true or not. God is. But yet this is what should astound us, that God did make himself known to you and to me. He made himself known. He revealed himself to the Jewish nation in the Old Testament. He revealed himself to us through the person of Jesus Christ, as he walked in the Old Testament, as he healed, as he lived, as he lived a perfect life, and he ate and dined and, and was, was with humanity. And though, though we don't know him, maybe we didn't know him then, and we don't see him now, and though we've done wrong and we have sinned, God is still gracious. That even though we are faithless, it doesn't make God faithless. 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, he what? Remains faithful. He still is faithful, for he cannot disown himself. So we see, because God is the standard, we don't define who he is. We don't nullify his righteousness. We don't take away from anything 
from who this God is. So it continues on in verse 5 to 8. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I am using a human guard argument, so he's reminding us here that this is human. This is not godly, so probably is a reminder of us that that's kind of foolish kind of thinking. Verse 6, certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Verse 8, why not say, as some slanderously claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result. Their condemnation is just. Okay, so if you're tracking with us so far, with me so far, we get that God's goodness isn't dependent on God's, uh, on humanity's goodness. All right, so when we sin, we don't nullify, uh, we don't take away from the power uh, of God. We don't take away from who he is. And Paul is having this argument, right, with, with, with his readers, with whoever it is that he's reading, with us here today. He's saying, okay, you can imagine the human mind's like, okay, if we sin and it doesn't take away from who this God is, the human mind naturally jumps ahead in our brokenness and misunderstanding and think, well, does our sin matter at all then? Aren't we actually doing God a favor? And this is what he's arguing for here. He's jumping ahead into our minds. So Paul is saying that even though we might do good, and again, I've said that humanity does have the ability to do good, we don't actually have the ability to declare ourselves righteous. We can't justify ourselves. We can't justify our actions. We don't have the ability to do that. Since God is the standard, humanity doesn't have the ability to declare ourselves righteous. We can't just go around and be like, well, that red line, I'm just going to bump it down. And look, I'm tall enough now. We, we can't do that. It doesn't work that way because God is, is the standard. So Paul is arguing with us and, and painting this picture that's pushing us back as the readers up against the wall. He puts us in our place where we're all sinners. We're all falling short of the glory of God. None of us are righteous because we've all traded God for someone else. That's in chapter 2. So we're all sinners. We've all done things that are not of God, and we're deserving of judgment if we don't have Jesus Christ. That's where Paul has pushed, up, pushed us up against. And Paul continues the argument here and already knows what his listeners are thinking. They're thinking, okay, fine, I'm a sinner. All right, Paul, you, you win. Okay, you got, okay I'm listening. I'm a sinner. I'm not perfect. I haven't done what's right. I get that. I'm not really that bad. And then Paul throws in, well, actually, you kind of are because God's the standard. God's the standard. That, that is the line that we're meant to live at. And then we're pushed back in even more and say, okay, fine. God's the standard. Really, maybe I'm not that good. I'm not that good at all. Fine. Compared to God, I'm not that good either. But, but, but maybe my sin is part of his plan. And Actually, I'm doing God a favor by sinning because God needs me. God needs me to sin because without evil, there's no good. Without me doing bad, then you can't really save me. There's no grace. So I'm actually doing the Lord's work when I'm sinning. I'm actually doing God a favor. I'm actually part of God's army here as I go out and sin and do the worst that I can. That's the argument here that Paul is laying out for us. So we see here what happens when us as humanity, when we're pushed back against the wall. We keep trying to justify ourselves. We keep trying to justify and bump ourselves up. And we keep pushing back until, until we start blaming people. Instead of looking inward, we start blaming. We start blaming everyone around us. We start blaming our upbringing. We start blaming my mom and my dad. We start 
blaming our parents. We blame the people around us. We blame the teachers. We blame the church. We blame the system. It's someone else's fault, everyone else but my own. That's what Paul is saying here. That's what he's painting for us. We start blaming God. That God is the reason. And this is actually a way as we blame ourselves out of our situations is a way of us justifying ourselves. It's a way of us tiptoeing around in, in, this, in this world, in this life that we live in. You see, when we don't take responsibility, we assign responsibility to someone or something else, and that's called blaming. When we don't take responsibility for our own actions, we don't take responsibility for our own sin, our own brokenness, and we assign it to someone else, that's, that's called blaming. And that's actually a really, really old and, and uncreative and unoriginal explanation because I'm sorry to break it to you guys, to break it to the rest of humanity, but Adam already did it. All right, Adam in the garden already said to God, when God says, Adam, what have you done? When you ate it before the bitten fruit, Adam said to God, why did you create this woman and give her to me? So Adam already took that excuse, and, and we're living in the aftermath of that, of us blaming God, blaming everyone else and everything else except for ourselves. In fact, it goes even deeper, as I've been alluding to, if I'm sinning, it's actually God's fault, right? God made me this way. God made me with all these struggles. God made me do it. Actually, you know what? God needs me. God needs me to do wrong so he can be right. Better yet, God may even need the devil. He needs Satan, because without the Satan, what would God be doing in this world? And this kind of justification keeps going on and on and on, and it keeps happening. Some people have this mindset. That if God is seen better in my own sin, in my own brokenness, then let me continue to sin to show how, God, how good God is. We start creating excuses for our sin. But hear this, guys. We do not use the grace of God as a license to sin. We don't use the grace of God as a license to sin, as a license to justify what it is that we're doing. We can't blame God. Because when we blame, we're really blaming God for setting that standard. We also can't blame God when we fall short of that standard. When we blame God of falling short of that standard, it's kind of like, like us saying, we're blaming the basketball hoop. It's 10 feet tall when I shot an air ball. Why is the basketball hoop 10 feet tall? It's like, you just shot an air ball, man. Like, you know, don't blame the hoop. When the hockey net is 72 inches wide and 48, 48 inches tall, when you miss the shot, don't, bet, don't blame the size of the net. You miss the net. When you fall short of the 42.2 kilometers of a marathon, don't blame the 42.2 kilometers. You didn't train hard enough. You didn't take into consideration. You didn't count the cost. And I read in this article, we live in a time and culture where we think this. If a man cuts his finger off while slicing salami at work, he blames the restaurant. If a woman smokes three packs a day for 40 years and dies of lung cancer, she blames the tobacco company. If your neighbor crashes into a tree while driving home drunk, he blames the bartender. If the children or grandchildren are brats without, uh, without manners, we blame the television. We have to admit as humanity that we have fallen short. Instead of asking God to lower, lower it, we have to agree that we have fallen short of the standard because God can't lower the standard. God can't lower himself. He can't lower perfection. He can't lower purity because he is perfect and he is the standard. So Paul says, what shall we say then? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? And 
Paul is arguing here, saying, no, again, certainly not in verse 6. If that were so, then how would God change the world? He's saying to us, like, if you're expecting God to lower the standard, that doesn't make any sense, because how else would he come and do justice in the world? How does that practically make sense? If you want God to go easy on you, then God needs to go easy on everyone else. You can't, we can't use the standard we've set up just for ourselves because God, God judges all evil and every kind of evil. He doesn't pick and choose. He doesn't pick and choose. Like any good parent, he's consistent. Any parent that loves his, their kids, they're consistent with their discipline, with their understanding and their guidance. So whatever the standard is uh, that needs to be applied at the time, it needs to be applied. That's the standard that God has set. So what we want the standard to be applied to us, like that has to be the standard to everyone else. That means the standard you want applied to you needs to be the standard that applies to Hitler. The standard that's applied to Stalin, a standard that's applied to the murderer, to the rapist, to the cheater, that there is one standard of all or there's no standard. So which one do you want? We, wouldn't, we would say, God, of course we want you to be, execute your judgment. Of course we want you to bring about ju uh, justice because it doesn't make sense if you didn't bring about your justice. So Paul is saying here in this section, it doesn't make sense. Instead of us admitting that we're wrong, if we just try to justify ourselves, we're just really asking God to lower the standard. We're asking God to lower whatever it is that he has for us so that we can justify ourselves. So continues on saying, Romans 3, 9, what shall we conclude then? He keeps asking these rhetorical questions. Do we have any advantage? We, meaning the Jewish people there, us that believe to belong to God? Not at all. So he's saying Jews are blessed, but they're not better. There's going to be more to that in the coming chapters. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all what? All under the power of sin. That this is the issue. The problem isn't that human beings commit sin. It's the problem is that human beings are under the power of sin. We're under the grips of it. We're imprisoned by it. We need to be set free by it. That's the issue that's going on here. So whether God is, uh, whether we believe God is the standard or not, everyone has sinned. No one is perfect, and we all stand guilty. That's what Paul is saying here in this last section. It doesn't even matter if we believe God to be true or not. And he lays it out for us here by quoting a whole bunch of Old Testament texts, eight uh, to be exact. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. and the way of peace, they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And as we're reading here, it looks like a random set of passages, but there is an order. Now, Paul is casting a wide net here, and he's speaking to the Jewish people. He's, speaking, he's pulling texts that speak about the Gentiles. He's pulling texts that speak about people that are for God and people that are against God. And there's a thread that's running all throughout Scripture here that no one is perfect that we're all short of the glory of God, which is next week. There's a little bit more bad news as we continue on. But verses 11 to 12, he says that there is no one, like there's no one that is clean before God. We're all stand condemned. Verses 13 to 14, he highlights sins of speech. 
where there's four parts of speech that he highlights. There's the throat, there's the tongue, there's lips, and there's mouth. So all part of our, our mouths, like our, our speech system is, has been tainted. And then verses 15 to 17 is sins of violence. And without going too much into it, I think this is the message, this is the point here, is that does this not sum up the history of humanity? That this is the struggle since the beginning of time till now, that we have torn each other down with our words, that we've killed each other physically with physical violence, that this is the summation of human history. This is the state that humanity is in without God, without us having this relationship with Jesus. So he ends this section in verses 19 to 20 saying this, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. As we're coming to an end here, we, come, we understand and we see that the Jewish people may have read the Old Testament. They may have understood it, but they didn't apply it to themselves. Howard preached that last week. We didn't understand that for themselves. They applied that standard to everyone else. They looked at the Old Testament, Testament text and the law, and they said, wow, is everyone else surely bad? Like that's how, how, they, how many of them read, read this. So they applied it to others instead of themselves. They applied the law to others before they applied it to their own hearts. And it's never really been about following the law. If you understand the theme of Scripture, the theme of the Bible, the Word of God that he's given us, has never been about following just words or a law. It's been about following a God. It's about being, being in a relationship. God, grace has never been based on our good works, on what we understand and what we could do. But it's ba based on grace. It's based on who this God is. And that's the struggle for many of us today in Vancouver, in the West, that we still strive. And we still think we need to earn the salvation. We need to work for it. That we, if we don't justify ourselves, if we don't tiptoe, we don't go up to that standard, we try to bump ourselves up. But God is saying, don't do that. You need to be in this relationship with me. You need to understand what it is that you're reading. And this law, or nomos in, in the Greek, which, by the way, is where we get the suffix uh, nomi from in uh, astronomy or in economy, uh, it means like a system of rules or laws that God has given us the system of understanding how the world works, of understanding what it means for human flourishing, what it means for you to have a good life that God has called you to, that God has intended for you. And we're to understand the word of God, not as a flashlight as you go around, just shining in the dark and shining it upon other people. We're to understand the word of God, not as a flashlight, but we're actually to understand it more as a mirror. That when we read the word of God, it's actually a mirror that reveals ourselves that reveals who we are truly. We you think of the law as a mirror, and the mirror reflects what's already there, right? Every morning, you're like, oh, my hair. <laughs> oh, I gotta wipe that drool off my face. Ooh, I gotta wash my face. I gotta go take a bath. Like, whatever it is, the mirror reflects what's already there. And the law, in the same way, reflects what's happening to us spiritually. And some people try to take the law to fix themselves, but that doesn't make any sense. You don't look at the mirror in the morning and try to brush your hair with the mirror or try to wash your face with the mirror. That's a strange image. Or take a bath with the mirror. No, you got to do something else with it. The mirror just reflects and just shows. It's the same way the word of God. That's what it does to us. 
So when we see ourselves for who we really are, God is saying here through Paul that every mouth is silence. When you see yourself for who you truly are, every mouth is silence, the whole world is held accountable. Not word for accountable, this is the only place in all scripture that shows up. That when you see yourself for who you really are before God, when you see the standard that God has set before us, you're speechless like you are in a courtroom. We're speechless and held accountable. Where all humanity stands speechless in front of the righteous judge awaiting judgment. But there is good news in that. Because God is righteous. Because God is gracious. Because this is where Jesus comes in. And I'm trying not to jump too far <laughs> into what Paul's going to say, but this is so good. We need to understand how bad the bad news is in order to understand how good the good news is. This is why we need Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, because there is a gospel for the unrighteous. There is a gospel for no matter how, fall, uh, how short you have fallen. The standard for your value and for your righteousness isn't what the world says. The standard for your value and your righteousness and your worth is not what you tell yourself, how you need to be better, you need to do better. It's not in what others say about you. It's in who God says. It's in, the righteous, in what the righteous judge says to you. And Jesus is the one who helps you to see who you really are, but he also helps you by not leaving you as you are. He helps you along. He cleans up your hair. He washes your face. He washes your feet. He picks you up. He makes you whole. Jesus is the one who makes you new. And two questions as we end today. Firstly, how good are you at admitting you're wrong? I think that's the main, one of the main messages here today in this text. Instead of blaming everyone else, instead of looking out in the world, how good at, are you at admitting you're wrong? Because however good you are admitting you're wrong displays how close you are to this God that we follow. Secondly, are you applying the scriptures to everyone else? Are you applying this mirror, the, the scriptures, to yourself? Church, the prerequisite to following Jesus is to admit that you're wrong. That's the prerequisite to following Jesus. The way to eternal life is through Jesus. The way to Jesus is to admit that you're sinful, that you've messed up, and that you need him. You do that today, then we live in his grace, and we celebrate. And then tomorrow, when we wake up, we do the same thing over and over again. And then the third day, and the fourth day, until we see him again in glory until we see him again in heaven. So starting today, guys, as a church, no more excuses, no more blaming, no more justifying, no more minimizing, no more shifting, but us just coming before Jesus and saying, here I am. I need you. This is all I am. I need you. I need your gospel. I need your healing. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we thank you for your good word. We thank you, God, that your word is enough, that it reveals to us the state of our humanity. But God, this morning, we thank you, Lord, that you are that perfect standard. You are the standard for righteousness and that you're untainted, that you're unshifted, and nothing can remove you from your throne. And you are the God that we follow and you're the God that we live to and live for. Father, this morning, for those of us that have, that have lived in ways where we thought that Christianity is just about following rules. 
and just doing what's right and trying to justify ourselves and tiptoeing our way around, Father, I pray that in your spirit that you'll convict us. That you just tell us to cut that out, that we're not fooling anyone, that we're not fooling you. As the church, as humanity, we're just a bunch of broken people trying to follow the king, the one that loves us. This morning, God, this morning, we just lay ourselves down. We repent of our selfish ways. We repent of the ways that we try to justify ourselves. And we're just saying, God, that we need you, that we want you. We need your healing. We need your love. We need your presence. May it start today by us acknowledging, God, that you are good and that we belong to you. So may we hear the voice of the Father. We feel the embrace of your arms. May we hear the comfort of your voice. In Jesus' name we pray.